Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 78 being recorded on Thursday, April 6th, 2017. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and hey, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, I was looking at our uh, logs out on iTunes, and we've been so busy interviewing retail luminaries that we, you and I haven't reported on the news since early March. So we have a ton to catch people up on. Uh, that I totally agree. I'm super excited, and I'm equally excited uh, to be talking to you with my full voice. Yeah, yeah, it's good to have normal Jason back and put Froggy Jason kind of into the into the uh, catalog there. Um, hopefully, listeners weren't too put off by it. I hear that most of our listeners listen to us at two X anyway, so you, you were still a chipmunk, so I'm, I'm sure it was fine. I was extra chipmunky. <laughs> so let's kick off. You uh, have been quite the world traveler. I haven't done anything since Shop Talk, so I've been kind of boring. But uh, tell us about you. Any interesting world travels to report on? Yeah, I have been uh, on the road quite a bit since Shop Talk, uh, mostly customer visits. But I did get to do uh, an event I like to do every year in New York City. Um, it may not be super familiar to a lot of our listeners. So it's called the Path to Purchase Institute, and they put on this annual show called the Shopper Marketing Summit. Um, and it historically has not been a very digital uh, summit. It's a, a long-time event targeted at shopper marketers that focus on on marketing inside of brick-and-mortar retailers. And what was interesting— so Like circulars or like uh, circular makers or—, uh, or there, like There's a little bit of that, it, yeah, but it's, it's a lot more like product displays, like temporary point-of-purchase uh, materials, like promotions and uh, in-store promotions— uh, product samples, um, all, all of the sort of uh, traditional tools a retailer would use to promote products, and more so brands than retailers. So the show is really focused on like what are, what are the best tactics for Mondelez or Procter and Gamble um, to to use to help their their product get disproportionate attention on the shelf. Got it. Cool. What was uh, riveting at that show? Yeah, so uh, what I just found interesting is, you know, that uh, how much digital had permeated the conversation there. So there were uh, first they asked me to speak. So uh, we actually did a uh, with some of my coworkers from Publicis, we did a, a four hour uh, workshop on digital disruption and talking about all the ways that that the that we feel the whole discipline of shopper marketing has been fundamentally disrupted by by uh, digital and the you know evolving path to purchase. Um, but there were a lot of other, you know, there were like speakers from Kimberly Clark talking about digital merchandising and there, you know, frankly, a lot more presentations that you would have ex- uh, traditionally expected to see at a Catalyst show. Um, you're now starting to see at some of the, these traditional shows um, and they, they have ways to go. The I feel like the sessions that were most popular with the audience were were would probably be pretty rudimentary to to our average listener. Um, but it is interesting that these traditional disciplines are now, you know, really starting to focus on our space. Digital is eating the world, as we predicted. It is indeed. And while I was there, 
uh, our our friends uh, at Amazon opened a new bookstore two blocks from my house. Wait, you know what that means? It's time for Amazon News. Your margin is their opportunity. As I was saying, Amazon opened their Chicago bookstore, and I, I presume because Jeff is such a loyal listener that he carefully selected a location only a few blocks from my house. Wow. Tell us, um, so you've been, just to refresh listeners in case they, shame on them, missed the episode, when last you were traveling the Amazon bookstores, you went to the Seattle one, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've been in Seattle one a couple times now, um, but I, I was been there. To the New York one? Recently. The, I don't think the New York one is open yet. I think they're opening the second one. I think uh, Jason Del Rey was telling us he went to that one. <laughs> okay, that's Tell us possible. about Chicago, and I'll do some research. Yeah, so I have been to two, personally. I've been to the Seattle one and the San Diego one, which are very similar. Um, and they have evolved over the times I visited them. And so then, uh, looking at Chicago, Chicago is a little different than the last two in a couple of regards. Uh, the most notable difference is that it has a coffee shop in it. So... Uh, it has an espresso bar. They're serving um, Stumptown Coffee, which is a, a favorite uh, coffee brewer from my, my old hometown of Portland, Oregon. Um, and none of the other Amazons I've been to have a cafe or any food. Um, so, so you know, uh, that was certainly an interesting evolution. Um, it also had a few new categories in it. So one of the, the things that I hadn't seen before is – there was a popular kitchen accessories gondola in this store. Huh. And that uh, is a little interesting. Like traditionally, you know, they merchandise books in the store, uh, physical books. And uh, just quick refresher for folks that we haven't talked to before uh, that haven't listened to some of the other shows. Um, it's not designed uh, the way a traditional bookstore would be designed, right? So you, you have a couple thousand square feet. You want to get as many books as you can into that, that, those 2,000 square feet. So normally, most of the books are, are merchandised on their spine, and only a few promotional books are, are merchandised facing you. This Amazon store has, has very few books in it because all the books are merchandised facing you so that it's a much more attractive presentation. They print paper price tags next to every book, and that price tag... Uh, or, or what we call a fact tag has the reviews from Amazon on it. So it has the star rating and, and a couple select customer reviews. So mer uh, reviews play an important part in merchandising the store and they'll actually have gondolas uh, for merchandising books by rating. Like these are here, are all books that are rated over 4.8 stars. Here are the top rated uh, books for the city of Chicago, um, things like that, that, you know, are sort of real clever social merchandising uh, pricing is really weird in these stores. They charge list price uh, if you're not an Amazon Prime member. Um, and if you are an Amazon Prime member, you get the online price. But because, the, as we all know, the online price changes so often, they don't print the online price in the store. So you literally have to use the Amazon app on your phone to scan the fact tags uh, to see what the current price is of the book you're going to buy or, or use one of the scanners that they have built into the store. Cool. So um, you were right. I was wrong. It's, I think this is a Jason and Scott first. The They have not opened the first location in New York. It's Columbus Circle, and it's opening in the spring. So I think they have like, 
we'll give them another month here. Uh, and then the second one they announced is going to be across from the Empire State Building. So they've announced to open none in New York, but opening one soon. Yep. Uh, so Columbus Circle will be first, and Empire State will be second. Tell, tell me more about the um, – the kitchen section of this this store. Yeah. So as I was saying, like, you know, you have that kind of book presentation and then the bulk of all the Amazon stores is really the Amazon branded electronics, right? So the store is yeah. really about Kindle and Echo. And, you know, I would call it a consumer electronics store dressed as a bookstore. Um, okay. And so, you know, I'm cer- certain they're happy to sell books in that store, but it really feels like the job of the store is to educate customers uh, about the the Kindles and the Echoes and the Fire tablets, um, and uh, so the center of the store is around that. They have their sort of equivalent of a Genius Bar where you can get live help. They do you know scheduled live demos and tutorials, um, a lot of those kinds of things. And so you know traditionally, those are the two kinds of things that are in the store: the electronics, including accessories and third party products that work in the in the Amazon Alexa Echo system. Um, and then books. And so this Chicago store was the first store I've seen that had other hard goods in addition to Amazon products and the books. And so they literally had a gondola that's like best-selling kitchen appliances on Amazon. And it's showing things like immersion blenders, uh, sous vide machines, um, kitchen aid mixers, uh, th- things like that. And so they literally like took the you know, 10 of the best-selling products uh, in a, in another category and put them in the front of the store. Cool. Did you see, um, I've seen some tweets that, and I visited the Amazon store in December of 16. So it's been a while. I mean, it was 15. Uh, and the, but anyway, the tweets have shown a lot more of the Amazon basics showing up in the store. Did you see evidence of some of the private label stuff kind of creeping in? Uh, yes, in categories that are related to electronics, right? So they, they, uh, a lot of the Amazon basic, like cables and batteries are, are merchandise, but they're really merchandised as accessories for the, the fire tablets and things like that. Um, it, there's not a, a, a display that's like assorted based on being Amazon basics, for example. They're just interspersed on the, on the displays where they would be most appropriate. Yeah, we're going to talk about it a little bit later, but they've got enough private label and apparel. I wonder in those New York stores if we can magically see a little fashion section open up. It'll be kind of interesting to see how that progresses. Yeah, it, it totally will. Like intuitively, the stores they've designed so far are lacking some amenities you'd normally expect in an apparel store, like dressing rooms and and you know things like that. But like could easily be retrofitted, or or more to your point, like the next store could easily add them. Yeah, cool. Anything else from uh, from the road? Um, nope. I think given all the other exciting stuff we have to talk about that should uh, probably cover it on the Jason trip reports for this week. Cool. Well, since we're in the Amazon news section, I wanted to go back to shop talk. Uh, and that was, uh, kind of late March. Uh, they had Amazon had two speakers at shop talk this year, which is interesting. They've been notoriously shy about going to conferences, but this year they were, they were pretty bold. So they had Stephanie Landry and this was her second year at shop talk. And she talked about prime now. Um, I didn't really get much new from that other than, you know, it continues to be an area where they're aggressively expanding. Um, and one of the things I like to reference is, you know, they essentially, uh, once they decided to put the pedal to the metal on prime now, they opened up 
in 40 to 45 markets in the span of two, two and a half years. So a lot of people um, talk about some of these experiments they're doing and they kind of scoff and say, oh, it's just an experiment. But I always caution people that when Amazon decides that something is out of the experiment phase, they can scale it really quickly. So that was a good reminder of, of that program and what they can do. And, um, you know, one of the, as a guy that's decided to build a consumer oriented uh, business, one of the most interesting quotes from that was, um, you know, when someone, I think she got a question from the audience about the profitability of it. And she said, well, at Amazon, you know, we really focus on the customer first and then we can, we solve for profit second. And she, the, then the corollary of that was the interesting part. And she said, it's much harder to solve a customer problem than a, uh, a customer experience problem, kind of meaning, you know, this, whatever they're building isn't delighting customers versus a profit problem. So that that's a really kind of an interesting, you know, everyone talks about you know, putting the customer first, but Amazon really, really does it. And they've done it since day one when they couldn't afford to. Now they obviously have the luxury of being able to do that. But, you know, they they really don't care about the profitability of this thing. They want to really nail, nail that customer experience, and then they'll kind of get there on the profit side. And that's how Prime started. When Prime launched, everyone thought they were crazy, and it could never make any money. And, and uh, you know, from what I've heard from Amazonians, it, there was a lot of controversy as they launched that, that Bezos was really into it. And a lot of people, because when you do the math on Prime, you can kind of say our best people aren't going to pay for shipping and our worst people are going to get free shipping and there's no way this economically makes sense. What I think they didn't, the, the those people didn't count on was it was such a delightful program for customers, their volume went up 10x and then it kind of magically pays for itself. So so that was kind of a, a interesting, a lot of it was repeat, but but I liked that one comment. Um, and then the second speaker was a first at Shop Talk, and it's Peter Ferrissey. And uh, I've known Peter for a while, and uh, he works for Sebastian Gunningham and runs the marketplace part of, of Amazon. And the surprise for me is when I've seen him speak at our conferences, and, and I think he's been an internet retailer once, it's usually about you know sellers on the marketplace. To this talk at Shop Talk was 100% about brands. Uh, talking, you know, he essentially, the whole thing was targeted to brands, how they're an important constituent to Amazon. Uh, and then he talked about four reasons why they should sell on the platform. They're all pretty obvious, you know, shipping, we have the scale, we're friendly to brands, these kinds of things. Um, that was a real surprise to me because I've never seen Amazon talk that way about brands. Uh, and in fact, you know, if, if uh, one of the questions I get a lot is what, you know, does Amazon have any chinks in their armor or that kind of thing? And their relationship with brands has been strained. And, you know, some some brands, I talked about it in my panel where, you know, a lot of brands we talk to, um, they kind of go with the nuclear option, I call it, where they essentially say, look, we're going to yank all our stuff. Nike is kind of the most famous where they've decided not to work with Amazon in a first or third party relationship. And they prohibit people from selling any authorized resellers from selling their stuff on Amazon. Um, so, so I think Amazon realizes that's a challenge and they kind of had a, a softer message for brands than I've ever heard. Did, did you uh, catch either of those? Yeah, I caught both of them and I, I would totally agree with you. Um, on the Amazon Prime now, you know, both how fast they were able to scale that in 18 months, getting to more than half the U.S., but also, like, uh, you know, the shocking thing is it was like 111 days from the first meeting where they discussed doing one-hour delivery to opening that first one-hour delivery concept, right? And so that that level of agility is super impressive and terrifying. Um, and I just like to quote, someone was asking, like, when she describes Amazon Prime now, the thing, the picture everyone has in their mind is 
uh, that's the service you use to deliver the cold medicine when you're sick because you, you physically can't go out of the house and you need it quickly. And she was pointing out that those kind of emergencies are, are part of the service, but that the overwhelming majority of the service is not for those things that need to be delivered in an hour, but rather for things that consumers just want in an hour. And so it's, it's less about, you know, it only gets used as a necessity and more that it's a delightful customer experience that people appreciate. Um, I yeah. also uh, uh, found it, you know, uh, th- that sort of reminded me of another super recent Jeff Bezos quote um, where, where he was talking about uh, how they've had lots of great innovations over the years that they loved, inventions that Amazon loved, uh, that consumers didn't really care about. And he, he's talking about the fact that, like, I can assure you that, that no, no invention that consumers don't adopt has ever been disruptive. And so just sort of focusing on the fact that, like, the hardest part of this whole equation is is figuring out an experience that that's magic to consumers and that they want to do. Yeah. You just reminded me too, that I think some breaking news Stephanie put out there is uh, that occasionally if possible on echo orders, they will, if it's in prime now, they'll write it to that and delight customers by delivering it in an hour. Um, did you, did you catch that? Am I saying that right? No, I think you're exactly right. I think she said that okay. like, if, if you order from, from, uh, Echo and it's available in Prime now. They'll deliver it in an hour to sort of surprise and delight you. Yep. Cool. And then uh, another thing that's been really interesting is so so since Shop Talk and really unrelated, but you know what, what happens is as you get kind of through the end of a quarter, Wall Street analysts go and they kind of you know they check their channels and they update their models. And right towards the end of March and early April, everyone started doing that, and several analysts came out and said, you know, we we actually think Amazon's underpriced here. And at the time, Amazon was at about a hundred eight hundred dollars the stock price. Um, and some analysts came out and, um, you know, three or four that I follow that are kind of called what's the axe on wall street, which is kind of the leading analyst. Um, they really bumped that price target up to over a thousand dollars. so one went to a a thousand twenty five and then even kind of said, you know, we think that Amazon probably will be the first trillion dollar market cap stock. Um, so then a couple other analysts followed suit and then the stock took off. And as of this recording, it's about $900. So that's a, you know, that, that's a, that's a pretty big run from 800 to 900. You know, what is that, you know, about 15%. Um, and you know, when you're dealing with a company, the size of Amazon, that, that is a material change. So now Amazon, uh, is worth about twice the market cap of Walmart. Uh, now market caps are one thing and revenues are different. You know, Walmart has more revenue than Amazon and all these kinds of things. So we're just talking about the, what wall street thinks the two companies are, are valued at. Um, and if you dig into those notes, so, so that's a good headline, right? You know, trillion dollar company, thousand twenty five on the stock and then the stock reacts. But uh, I, I make a habit of reading these things and, and it's pretty interesting. You know, they talk about different pillars that, that Amazon has now. Um, the one that everyone's been pretty crazy about is the cloud computing, Amazon Web Services. So um, that it continues to grow faster than people have thought and be more profitable. Uh, the Prime business with Amazon's having to disclose more about Prime than they ever have. And in their annual report, they gave some new disclosures that essentially uh, let people back into that there's 
between, you can get a range, it's not exact, you have to kind of make some assumptions, but between 50 and 70 million Prime users. So so everyone's kind of putting it at about 65 million Prime users. So uh, that's bigger than some people thought, it's smaller than others, but it puts a real number there, which, which people uh, are pretty excited about. Uh, and then the other thing that the new disclosures did is they put some boundaries on the ad business. Uh, and there's kind of two parts to the Amazon advertising business. There's a CPC piece, and that's broken out in their financials one way. And then there's a banner piece, which is broken out another way. You add those up, and it's a pretty material business. It's, it's you know, it if you project its growth forward, it'll be the number three ad business behind Facebook and Google next year. So um, it's already bigger than Twitter, uh, for example. So, you know, people get pretty excited by that. Now, scale-wise, it's in the single-digit billions, and Facebook and Google are in the, you know, very high double-digit billions. So it's going to take a long time to catch them. Uh, and, you know, I don't know if it ever will, to be honest with you. But, you know, I think everyone's pretty excited by that because it's also extremely high-margin business along with AWS. <coughs> Excuse me. And then then kind of another pillar uh, is it, that's interesting uh, is, uh, and you know we talked about it here on the Jason and Scott show first, is this kind of Alexa. And when Wall Street talks about Alexa, they're kind of wrapping a lot in there. They're, they're, not only are they talking about the personal assistant, but, but all the things behind it, the, the semantic engine, the machine learning, the, you know, all, all the natural language processing and those kinds of things. And one of the analysts, Mark Mahaney, he's kind of said that's a $10 billion business. And when you read the report, it's, it's not just the sales of Alexa devices, but all the ancillary things. Um, around the same time, Amazon also announced uh, Alexa for the iPhone, which is we I want to talk to you about. Uh, and the last thing I wanted to talk about on this topic is um, – you know that Wall Street is also waking up to the fact at the same time one of these analysts upgraded Amazon, they downgraded Google, which I thought was interesting. And they specifically in the Google downgrade called out and said, we believe that Google's on a crash course with Amazon. And they cited the study you and I cite a lot that shows that product search has really switched from Google to Amazon. Uh, but then they also talk about the ad business and they, they make a pretty compelling argument uh, that A, you know, in a in a world where Amazon knows what everyone's buying, that ad business could be more valuable than Google's, where Google has some search intent, but Amazon has product intent. So that was kind of an interesting take. And you and I have talked about early on, as we go to this voice just you know voice commerce or whatever you want to call it kind of world, um, Amazon monetizes by selling stuff, and Google uh, uh, they announced this recently too. They they monetize by ads, and they're now putting ads into you know some of the different things you do on the Google Home Assistant, which is pretty cheesy to be honest with you. It, so it, it totally sucks, yeah. and it's totally interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so 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 it's kind of really really interesting example of, of Amazon having someone's back against the wall in a funny way and you know Google trying desperately like let's you know forget the customer experience let's throw some ads right in here when you ask the, the home assistant for the weather kind of thing it's, it's really really terrible so um, so I, I thought that was just kind of interesting and we, we we've hit on all those in the Jason and Scott show and uh, I know we have some Wall Street folks listening but I thought it was really interesting to hear a lot of what we talk about really summarized really well as as kind of a you know the pillars behind this this upgrade um, and then when you when you look at that uh, the result of that Amazon's now worth a Walmart a Target a Costco Best Buy and CBS all together so that's another kind of interesting thing uh, the other reason Result of that 
is that Jeff Bezos rocketed up the Forbes 500 list to number two, jumped over Warren Buffett, and is second only to Bill Gates. So to put that in perspective, and I haven't seen anyone do this, so this is a Jason Scott exclusive. So Bill G is at $84 billion, and Bezos is now at $76 billion as of recording this. So I did the math, and if the Amazon stock gets over 1000 assuming uh, that there's no big change in what you know Bill Gates is doing, uh, then he will be the richest person. So there you go. That is crazy. Uh, a scoop for the Jason and Scott show. And I'm, I believe that those two guys live like a mile apart. So that's a pretty affluent square mile in Seattle. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if they like, uh, check each other's mail when they're gone and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> they, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I would hope they have people to do that. Yeah, you never know. Hey, Bill, could you check my? Could you watch the dog while I'm out of town? Exactly. Uh, I think Jeff would have a robotic dog. Yeah, yeah, Kibo. <laughs> uh, I feel like there's a bunch of other Amazon stuff going on as well. Uh, one that uh, got a lot of attention in my world is there were some leaked invites. Um, the Amazon has invited a bunch of the the brands and particularly consumer uh, package goods brands um, to a summit at Amazon uh, where Amazon wants to talk to them about getting more serious in selling direct and give them some advice about what they need to, to do to successfully sell direct. Cool. What's, what's the buzz? Have you heard any, uh, give us some scoop on that whole thing. Yeah. Well, so the, the sort of clickbait headlines then become, you know, uh, Amazon wants to partner with Procter and Gamble to bypass uh, Walmart and Kroger and all those those things. Um, and well, I think that's certainly true. Um, I I actually think that Amazon is is less worried about like stealing those customers from Amazon uh, or from from the traditional brick and mortar retailers, uh, and Amazon's more interested in setting those those brands up to be more successful on Amazon in the digital era. So I think this this is a lot more about uh, co- convincing and conjoling these companies to change their product configurations to be more e-commerce friendly. So think about the bundling sizes, think about how they package their products. Um, you know, in a lot of other product categories, Amazon very successfully was able to ch- get manufacturers to change how they package their goods uh, to make them more consumer friendly on Amazon, so they they had this whole frustration free packaging program, for example, and uh, consumer cons- uh, consumer package goods are are predominantly designed to market to customers on a store shelf, and so their their package really isn't very friendly uh, to uh, shipping in that Amazon cardboard box, and I, I think uh, Amazon's interested in convincing them to to fix that. Yeah. Yeah, the um, and then you know Jason Del Rey, who has been on the show, had some interesting kind of uh, reaction from the brands that felt like you know they're they're caught up in this Amazon versus Walmart war, and everyone wants lower prices. So that's certainly not a not a pleasant place to be. What what's your advice to brands that are kind of you know I'm, I'm sure you guys get a lot of questions about this. What how do you tell folks to avoid that? Yeah, well, I mean, two twofold. Like I I do think if you're a brand. Um, that that's in that space that you you do want to be on Amazon at this point, right? Um, the 
like more than half the growth in that category over the next three years is coming from digital. And Amazon is today more than 50% of that, that digital pie. So, uh, it's a pretty expensive mistake to not, uh, be where all that customer demand is on the Amazon platform. Um, obviously we did, we did a show a couple of weeks ago with Melissa, uh, talking about the, a lot of the fundamentals of being, uh, on the Amazon platform. Um, and, uh, Jason Delray's article really sort of emphasized one of the points from that show, right? And that's that there's this, this really, real negative cycle at the moment where, um, you sell products on Amazon, uh, and so you, you know, part of your seller agreement with Amazon is that, that you'll give Amazon, uh, the best pricing and you won't sell it, uh, less than them, uh, and they have all these algorithms that watch your price and react to them. Um, so, so then when you give a different bundle to Costco and Costco's selling a case of Campbell's soup and the price per ounce in that case is very low, um, Amazon sees that and drops drops the price on quantity one of that that can of soup to that super low price, um, and then uh, you know they're selling it super low, and then Walmart uh, merchants kick in and start beating you up for selling the product much lower on Amazon than you're offering the quantity one price to Walmart. Um, so the the challenge at the moment is you. Is to you when you think about these products, if you really think about reconfiguring the products for e-commerce, you probably want to think about more than packaging. Like you, you probably want to create different SKUs that are different enough um, that they don't trigger that that sort of pricing cycle. Mm. And so that potentially even means like you know different formulations or different flavors or or you know different size squares of Swiffer. On Amazon than the squares of Swiffer that you buy uh, in Walmart, so that those aren't the same skew and they don't they don't get caught in that pricing cycle. And you definitely want to make sure your warehouse bundle isn't comparable feeling, so because that that's tough. Exactly, <laughs> and I you know I do I in the long run that's just not sustainable. Like that you know the both Amazon and Walmart are somewhat benefiting from that at the moment, and the the. In the long run, the margins just aren't there for the manufacturers to get squeezed between those two guys. And so, you know, either uh, the manufacturers will have to find some other way to survive by selling direct without those guys. And those guys will both launch private labels. And, you know, I, I think we're seeing the uh, a collision course between these product manufacturers and these and these product resellers. Yeah, another hot topic kind of in this vein is Amazon's really ramping up private label as we talked about at the top of the show. So so most folks are familiar with the Amazon Basics, which is things like HDMI cables and whatnot. Um, another Wall Street analyst I follow has done a lot of research and uh, is fascinating. He starts um, usually in the trademark, the bowels of the trademark database. Um, and Amazon, this is hard because Amazon uses uh, a lot of – I hate to use the word shell corporations, but Agents. You know, they, yeah, misdirection, let's just say, you know, very legal misdirection to try to hide what they're doing. Um, so these folks kind of triangulate down and they know that this agent typically works with Amazon and there's ways they can kind of back into it. And then they search on Amazon and they, they kind of figure out that if these things they find are exclusive on Amazon to prime or, or there's a certain, you can kind of tell how the A to Z pages are written that it's effectively private label. So they've identified a good kind of, um, you know, 15 to 20 private labels that a lot of people don't know about. 
Um, one we've talked about on the show is Amazon Elements, um, and uh, you know we we we've talked to folks about that. But the area where there's the most growth is in apparel. So there's things like. Um, Ella Moon is a women's bohemian-inspired casual clothing. And what's interesting, most of these are Prime exclusive, which means that if you're not on Prime, you you see them, but you can't buy them. Um, and there's a lot in every category. And the way, the way I've seen it now is uh, – so Amazon has – you have the name brand. So let's see. I'll pick on one. I don't know a good bohemian brand, but let's say uh, dress shoes. So um, men's dress shoes. So they'll have uh, – Cole Haan or someone like that, and that'll be the name brand. And let's say that's like $125. Then there'll be a Chinese kind of just no, you know, straight from the manufacturer, and it'll have a brand, but it's no brand you've ever heard of. Um, and it is clearly, you know, clearly a Chinese brand. So it'll be brand X, and it'll be like $30. Then what Amazon will do is that's a big gulf. And they'll kind of split the middle. So somewhere in that $60 to $70 is where they'll inject their private label, and it will – It'll have a much more kind of, you know, it, it feels Amazon-ish and it feels like it's backed up by Amazon because it's Prime exclusive, but it doesn't exactly say Amazon all the time. So, like, they have one Franklin and Freeman, which kind of sounds like, what is it, Johnson and Murphy? Um, so, they have Franklin and Freeman, which is men's dress shoes, and that, that'll that be in that 60 to $80 category. So, you know, um, one brand asked me, you know, how, you know, why, how do they decide where to do this? And what I've heard from folks is it's data-driven. So, they can actually, you know, their, their data has gotten smart enough where it'll go identify imbalances between supply and demand. So they'll see there's demand in men's dress shoes for an $80 shoe, uh, and uh, they will go go then you know work with manufacturers and create what they think is missing by looking at the data uh, and put it out there. So that that's a really, you know, um, everyone in CPG and grocery stores does private label, but I think the way Amazon is doing it is, is pretty unique. Uh, for a couple reasons, the way the way they're layering it in with the Chinese manufacturers going direct, the exclusivity to Prime, and, and those kinds of things. Yeah, and I think what's interesting is you know even you talk to really savvy people and they they have you know they want to talk about Amazon's private label strategy, and I like to point out no 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 uh, it's not a private label strategy it's a label strategy. Um, yeah, yeah. that like, you know, a lot of the, you know, traditional private label, it's about like, in all, uh, same feature set at an alternative price point. Um, and you know, a lot of these products, like they're, they're targeting, uh, alternative price points, not necessarily lower by the way. Um, and, and they're, they're optimizing features for that price point. So, you know, these are, these are not just knockoff products of a national brand in many cases. Um, and so, you know, and 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 many of them, they're putting marketing behind trying to build a brand. And the the most notable today, of course, is is Alexa is a is a total credible billion dollar brand that that Amazon has built. And so, I wouldn't necessarily say they're a great brand building company yet, but they're getting consistently better and they're iterating. Um, and so, I don't rule out the day uh, that that some of these apparel brands. Um, you know, ha- are legitimate brands on their own that that stand out and have customers uh, that are interested in buying them. Uh, I think a particularly interesting one you you mentioned um, Amazon Elements. They I just got an email. Uh, they have launched a, a vitamin D product. So this is entering the nutrition space, which is another space that I think uh, their data has shown them there's an opportunity. 
Um, and right now it's an exclusive invite only product. So you have to apply to buy it, which I did. Um, and I just got accepted. And one of the novel features, um, is that they, they have sort of the, the Amazon Firefly x-ray technology built into their product packaging. Um, and so I, I haven't received the, the bottle yet, but like when you aim the Amazon app, uh, with your, your camera at these new bottles, um, you get a, a ton of supplemental information about the product. So it's sort of uh, enhanced virtual packaging for, for these products. Yeah, that's kind of a page out of the honest playbook, right? But, um, you know, they it, it's hard to put that all in a little vitamin bottle. So I imagine that's kind of part of it is by by running out of real estate, they can and it can be dynamic, too, I guess, if they they could even do A-B testing. That'd be pretty wild, wouldn't it? Yeah, and change it all the time. And again, it goes back yeah. to this in the old world where you printed the label on the package and that was your marketing. And then that label lived on a Walmart shelf. Um that, you know, there was one approach, but in this new world where it's coming in a cardboard box, um, that, that packaging plays a different role, right? Like it's, it's not the zero, mo- the first moment of truth for you anymore. It's a post ownership experience that's most important on that bottle. And so, you know, it's pretty interesting, uh, that Amazon is, is obviously the first mover there, but I, I think a lot of what they hope to talk to the CPG companies about in their summit is, is sort of moving in that direction. Cool. And then uh, the big news since Shop Talk, I'll let you jump into that one. Yeah. So uh, we've been talking about this for a little while that, that Amazon had another store concept that was under construction and they unveiled it last week and it is called Amazon Fresh Pickup. Um, and so this is a uh, extension of Amazon Fresh. So you you build a cart of products in, in your app uh on Amazon Fresh, and instead of having them delivered to your home, uh, they are available at this Amazon Fresh pickup location, and you drive through what amounts to sort of a drive-through stall um, at this location, and someone comes out and uh, puts the groceries that you ordered in the trunk of your car, so you never have to get out of your car, um, you don't have to perfectly synchronized being home when the Amazon fresh guy comes to your house so that you can get the milk and put it in the refrigerator. You go and pick it up from Amazon when you want. Um, but it, it, uh, is a lot more convenient than having to, to shop and bag for all your groceries yourself. So we, we've talked on this show a lot that buy online pickup in store is probably going to be the dominant model for digital grocery. Um, and you know, that that's one area where the traditional grocery stores have a big advantage over Amazon because they have a bunch of stores Amazon doesn't. I think what we're seeing here is Amazon's first generation answer to that problem um, that they've opened the store. And the most notable thing, I think we expected all of that. Um, we were curious whether you'd be able to walk in the store and buy anything, which at the moment you can't. Um, but the, the, the big uh, sort of fire across the customer experience bow is that they are implying a 15 minute uh, guarantee. So 15 minutes after you click check out on your mobile app, your groceries can be ready to put in your trunk. And so what that means is uh, you're just leaving your friend's house from dinner and you realize you need some stuff for, for breakfast in the morning. You know, you, you can order it and likely swing by the, the Amazon Fresh pickup location on your way home. Or you can remember at the end of soccer practice that you need some stuff 
order it on the soccer field and pick it up on your way home. Um, none of the other grocery pickups have anything like a 15 minute guarantee. Like most of them don't have a guarantee. Uh, some of the best service levels are we'll have your groceries ready in an hour. And much more typical is we'll have your groceries ready in like four or five hours. And so, you know, once again, this is kind of like, you know, the industry ships everything in one to two weeks and Amazon comes out and says, we'll ship everything in two days. You know, now they're saying, we'll uh, we'll do byline pickup in store, but we'll do it in 15 minutes. Yeah, as the grocery guy, I had like three questions for you. So the first one, uh, I've watched the video like 50 times. The It seems like it's very shoppable, the store. Do, do you feel like they're going to let people actually go in and shop or will it be restricted to just the pickup area? So I expected before they announced it uh, that, there, that there would be some limited use cases of going into the store and shopping. But my take from the video and the folks I've talked to is that in this first generation, that's not the intent, that the, that the interior of the store is exclusively for uh, the merchandisers to, to do product picking and take the product out to your store, your, your um, car. So there, there is no get out of your car experience in the store at the moment is my understanding. Yeah. The other one is it looks like there's this kind of bank. It's almost like a, a sonic drive through where there's like uh, these banks of places you can drive through. Right. So instead of this linear model that my grocery stores tend to have, you've got a parallel model and it looks like there's 10 to 15 lanes. Um, but that that's interesting. And that's that's. That makes the scheduling kind of thing make more sense, right? Because you get this window, you go up there, and um, is that your understanding? And, and yeah, what if yeah. people? Yeah, I mean, you want to serve customers in parallel, not serially, right? So, so yeah. the more of those pickup windows, like they're not windows, but if you know, you sort of the the more of those lanes you have, the more simultaneous customers you can serve. Um, I, I I would suspect that there's not a fixed number of those lanes. I would suspect that that the number of lanes they offer is going to totally depend on the the footprint of the site they have for the store and, and, you know, the, the demand density in that, in that, uh, geo. Um, I would say that a bunch of the other grocery guys that have gotten serious about grocery pickup do something similar. So if you go to a market where Walmart is doing grocery pickup, um, you, you will see like a big bank of drive through stalls. Um, that frankly look very similar to the, the Amazon model. Um, but the big difference at the moment would be that, that 15 minute guarantee. Got it. And then, so no one else is close to that because my frustration is our local Harris Teeter offers it. And you know what you go through and you carefully pick all your groceries and then it says, Oh, I'm sorry. This is like Friday and I'm getting my weekend groceries and it'll say, Oh, we're sorry. There's no slots open for the weekend. You know, here's your Tuesday spot. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. So you've hit on a super sore subject. Most of the, the grocery pickups have like two flaws, right? Like the window is too long. So you, you didn't do a big advanced planning thing and you, you want to pick that up pretty soon after you ordered it in many cases. Um, and so, and very few of uh, the grocery stores have a guarantee. They have service levels they shoot for, right? Like, so, um, They'll shoot for that hour, but they don't guarantee that hour. Um, and that's a problem. But then the bigger usability problem that you just highlighted is almost all of them won't tell you what the pickup window is until after you build the list and check out. And so you don't find out that they can't meet your needs until after you've invested a bunch of work with them, which really frustrates customers and makes customers mad. Yeah. How does, so how, how does Amazon get around that by just kind of saying, um, 
Well, if I feel a, like the grocery store must they must want to know how much is in the cart to know how much time. So Amazon must just assume something. I, yeah, I mean know, my assumption, and I, again, it's it's not for like so the video implies that they can do it in fifteen minutes. It does not explicitly say they have a guarantee. Um, and so, you know, at the moment it's for employees only, similar to the ghost store. So we haven't actually gone to try it or even yet talked to someone that's, uh, that's been through it. I'll, I'll be back out in Seattle in a couple of weeks and I'll, I'll certainly go, go stock the site, um, and see, see what I can learn. But, um, if it's a true 15 minute guarantee, then, uh, you know, that puts all the onus on Amazon and it takes all the burden off of the customer, right? Like you don't, you, you don't need to worry about, uh, if you know you're never going to get uh have to wait longer than 15 minutes so you just you just jump in order the stuff and do it um but we'll we'll have to see to your point like if you can't know your pickup time until after you build your list then that really limits the utility yeah yeah so who do you think the main company is going to step up and encounter this or or do you think people just aren't worried about it because hey it's just an experiment no, I, uh, so I, I think the, the two people that are most worried about it have already been countering it before they launched this store, right? Like, so I, I think the, I mean, the, that Walmart sells the most groceries of anyone in the, uh, the country and they have probably three or four hundred of these pickup stores. And, uh, you know, they do have quite a few, they have dedicated pickup locations similar to this store that aren't even a Walmart store. Um, and, you know, frankly, if I showed you a picture of it and took the branding off, you would be hard pressed to tell the Walmart pickup uh, store apart from this Amazon uh, fresh pickup store. So, so, you know, Walmart is certainly doing the play from their side. Um, Kroger has now rolled out pickup in store to, to 400 stores. Kroger's the largest actual grocery retailer in the U S and for example, they own your Harris Tweeter teeter um, is, is one of their brands. Um, I think they were actually the first ones to do pickup. I think they did pickup before Kroger bought them. But uh, the both of those companies understand that that's gonna this is gonna be a huge use case. They have to get it right, um, and they're both investing a lot of money along with Amazon. You know, I think before Amazon launched this store, they would you you know you would have said, hey, here are the things where Amazon has a huge advantage, and and uh, but gosh, we have some huge advantages too. We have four thousand stores, or we have two thousand stores. Um, and we have much bigger parking lots and all, all of these sorts of things. Um, and you know, I think the big, the big fear here is, uh, that Amazon recognizes the pickup is a, a, a significant opportunity and they're opening a couple stores. And, you know, going back to our, our prime now conversation, if these stores work well for Amazon and they, they demonstrate uh, customer demand that this is a delightful experience for customers, um, and, and frankly, like I, I've seen a lot of evidence that customers really do like grocery pickup. Um, I, I think they could scale those stores super quick, right? Like I think they could either buy a retailer and convert all that, the, that retailer's, uh, footprint into these pickup stores. Or, you know, I think like they did with Amazon Prime now, um, they could easily open 2000 of these things in 12 months if, if they decided that the, the market supported it. Yeah. Speaking of Amazon Go, there was some news there. What's what's going on with Go? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, they launched it last year in 2016, and it was for employees only. And just super quick reminder, this is the the convenience store where you grab the items and you, you walk out of the store and you don't have to check out or pay or do anything. And uh, the artificial intelligence and the cameras in the store 
figure out what you took with you and charge you for it. So it's just walk out technology, hashtag JWAT. Um, <laughs> so that was supposed to be for employees only last year, and it was supposed to open to the public early this year. And as of now, it still hasn't opened, and there is a lot of uh, internal rumors that it's not going to open to the public for a while. And the reason is that they are struggling to support some of the edge cases. And one of the big edge cases they're struggling to support is apparently when they get more than about 20 people in that store at a time, um, they lose the capacity to accurately track all those people and their purchases. And so, like, you have a few people in that store, and the, the technology seems to work very well. Um, and, you know, again, I, I uh, can neither confirm or deny that I have myself have been in the store and tried it, and it worked quite well. Um, but it's easy to imagine that that there's not unlimited capacity to track people. And so, you know, it, scaling could be one of the problems. And so, you know, the, the rumor is, hey, this is super interesting technology, but it may be further away from being totally commercialized because they need to solve some of these these edge cases and the scalability problems. So you think it's a compute problem or you think that, you know, 20 people, the chances of being able to they, they can't tell them apart. You think it's more. I, I think it's both of those on? things. Like, I, like the the number of people is just one of the edge cases. They talk about other edge cases, like a guy takes off his jacket when he's in the store, or a guy puts on a hat when he's in the store, um, and you know, all of all of those things can be hard. Like as I pointed out in the fact, this is kind of a mock store. It's only three gondolas. There's no blind spots in the store. You're not allowed to use the restroom in the store. Like you know, all, all of these other things. Um, and so, you know, from day one, I've looked at this and said, hey, this is totally cool technology, um, but I don't think we're going to see a fleet of these stores competing with 7-Eleven in the near term because, you know, they're, even if you nailed the experience in this little prototype with the three uh, walls of product, um, you're still a long way from being able to do it in a 7-Eleven, and you're much further away from doing it in a 200,000-square-foot um, Walmart store. So... It's cool technology. I actually think we might see parts of that technology before we ever see the whole store. So one thing is those cameras take perfect inventory and every retailer struggles to know what their inventory is. Every retailer loses a ton of money because they have out of stocks. They have soup in the back of the store, uh, in the storeroom, but they're out of soup on the shelf and customers are shopping for soup and it takes six hours for a clerk to notice that they're out of soup and they have to go get more and bring it out. Um, but with this technology, you know exactly what your inventory is. So it makes it better for buy online pickup in store. Uh, it makes it better for, showing your inventory to people that are pre-shopping and don't want to drive to the store until they know you have it in stock. Um, and it makes it better for all these out-of-stocks and all these sort of other use cases. So I think we, Amazon could commercialize that piece of the technology before they completely uh, commercialize the JWAT. Cool. I'm picturing all these Amazon guys watching the security tapes and they're like, now who is this guy taking off his jacket? Look at this hat. And like, who's the guy juggling apples and uh, I have a feeling that guy looks a lot like our very own retail geek. You, uh, you, you do. Uh, you don't even have to picture it. If you go to the store in the far corner of the store, like this, the store is all windows, and so you can actually see the back room with all the guys dressed in orange um, that are watching tablets. And and frankly, that that's exactly what they're doing. They're helping teach the machine the edge cases. So it's not like they're the computer can't follow you and they're and, and they're replacing the computer with humans. But what happens is when the machine gets it wrong, a human audits it and tells the computer what's right so the computer can get it right next time. And and you you can pretty much watch those guys work if you stand in that corner. No, oh, wow. 
Cool. Or, or at least a friend told you. Uh, yeah. Well, no, you can see that from outside the store. So I, okay, great. Okay, good. Uh, a couple of other little things. I know we're we're uh, burning on time, uh, but Amazon launched a pretty interesting new influencer program. Um, so they, they've always had an affiliate program. Um, where, you know, you can, you can blog about stuff or put stuff on your social network and put a link in it and you'll get a, a commission on the sales on Amazon. Um, and, you know, if anything, they're tightening up that affiliate program. And I think, you know, a few months ago, they, they lowered their commissions on a lot of stuff, but they've now launched this bespoke influencer program, which is targeted at high volume influencers. Um, and it gives them uh, custom vanity URLs. Um, I, I think it, uh, rewards them more generously for sales and it's, it's just, it's an interesting invite only program. And the reason I say it's interesting is, uh, that those influencers are really becoming the new product marketing vehicle. So like in the old world, the way you generate product for demand for a product is you, you buy a Super Bowl ad or you run a TV ad and you, you reach 30 million people in one shot. Now, um, the way you generate demand for a product is, you know, through these micro influencers and, and finding the woman that, that talks about the particular makeup style that suits your product and getting her to blog about your product and put links in it. And Amazon appears to really recognize that trend and is building better tools, uh, to, to support that trend. Yeah, we've we've talked about, um, and if folks have had a chance to listen to the Coles program, for example, we've talked about kind of the death of the the Merchant King or the Merchant Prince. I forget what we call it. And, Merchant uh, Prince. Merchant Prince. So this is this is you know the you read about you know these influencers replacing it, and it's kind of Amazon saying, yeah, this is this is a thing. Yep, yep. Uh, so that's interesting. Uh, Amazon did their first drone delivery in the U.S. last month. So at the that Mars space conference that Jeff Bezos was at, they they delivered some sunscreen, and apparently that was the first time they got FAA approval to do a commercial delivery in the U.S. Um, I think one that got a bunch of buzz this week is that they stole the NFL deal from Twitter. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the scoop there is last year, Twitter bought the streaming rights for the Thursday night games. And I think there's four or five of these games. Um, they're kind of, it's funny, they, you know, they, they never know how they're going to play out. But it, there's notoriously the, the running joke is the Thursday night games end up being like the worst games out there because it's usually like the worst two teams in the league kind of thing. Um, but anyway, so the I don't know what you're talking about. My team is on every Thursday night. <laughs> Oh wait! <laughs> yeah, oops! It's the Chargers and exactly. and the uh, you know I don't know who else. Uh, the yeah, so the Cleveland Browns. We play the Cleveland Browns. The yeah. LA Chargers play the every Cleveland Thursday. Browns every Thursday. <laughs> well, guess what? Now it's going to be on Amazon Prime. And the Twitter deal never made sense to me. And there was there was some interesting scuttlebutt that you know. So Twitter paid ten million. And when they paid that, a lot of news folks reported that a lot of folks are scratching their head because they knew and, you know, the other people that bid on this would be like Google with YouTube, Amazon bid on that last year. Imagine even Facebook is now in the running for these things um, that, you know, they bid more and everyone was scratching their head. Why did Twitter win this? Um, Twitter didn't really do much with it. Uh, and now Amazon has won it this year and they're paying 50 million. So five X what Twitter paid. And, you know, obviously that's a lot of money and, you know, the, uh, a lot of people are kind of saying, well, why would they do that? And what's interesting is if you think about Amazon prime, number one, uh, Amazon has already announced that it's going to be prime exclusive content. 
they have a lot of data on this. So, you know, they've d- done another a number of programs, um, that driving program whose name I can never remember. You probably know what it is. Um, and, you know, they've, they've paid up for these things and it brings in enough subscribers that it more than pays for itself. So to do the math at this, if you kind of think of uh, at $100 for Prime, which is where Prime is right now, uh, you really only need about 50,000 new Prime members to come in and justify that $50 million price tag. Those are, those are big numbers, but when you have 65 million Prime people, getting another 50K actually isn't that yeah, doesn't seem like that high hurdle. And I would imagine there's if you're an NFL fan and you're sitting on the fence and, you know, this is you get access to your games and you get free shipping and all the other things that come along with Prime. So I imagine it'll actually be pretty lucrative for them and, and profitable. Uh, so that's kind of a controversial call, I guess. Um the the other thing I saw just quickly, uh, Amazon's really hiring a lot of customer service folks. They announced they're going to hire thirty thousand customer service reps, and they're doing a lot of customer service reps working from home. This is interesting. We're hiring a customer service rep at uh, my company Spiffy, and I actually interviewed a lady that had done this before. And uh, so, you know, what Amazon does is they essentially they train you, they give you an online training program on how to be a good frontline customer service p- person, and then they just have some basic. Uh, requirements for you to do this at home. Usually it's high-speed internet, uh, a desktop uh, or a laptop that's higher end, and then um, you need to get a mic with a, a headphone and a mic set. Um, and they, they actually kind of tell you the ones that they recommend. And then they actually will turn you on. You know, you you, you then kind of run this program, you check in, and you're, you handle customer service calls, and then you log out, and you get paid on kind of a, a an hourly and, and ratings and, and performance based so kind of three inputs. Um, so I found that fascinating and kind of funny. Uh, right after I talked to this lady, Amazon announced uh, that they uh, were productizing this, so anyone can use this functioning functionality now. It's part of AWS, and it's uh, I think of it as this call center that lives in the cloud, and it's called Amazon Connect. Uh, and then before that, they took another internal tool where they had their own video conferencing built off AWS called Amazon Chime. So Amazon's now kind of dog fooding out these things and then releasing them through AWS, which is which is itself, you know. AWS used to be these really kind of small Lego blocks that couldn't really do anything with unless you were a developer. And now they're actually kind of releasing these pretty robust applications uh, on top of AWS. Uh, Another quick one is they announced they're opening yet another fulfillment center. This one's a million square feet in Virginia. Uh, And then finally, they made what's one of their bigger acquisitions in a while, uh, and it's this marketplace from the Middle East, and it's called Souk. I think I'm saying that right, S-O-U-K. Q.com. Uh, that started in the UAE, and then uh, it's it's kind of like Mercado Libre, where it has like lots of countries in the Middle East that it covers. So it covers Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and Bahrain. Um, there's um, it's rumored that this was a six hundred fifty million dollar acquisition, and the company had raised money at kind of north of a billion. So so kind of a, a bit of a down round, but I think a good outcome for those folks. There is some other really big marketplace that's launching out of Saudi Arabia that has you know billions of dollars of investments and things. So I think uh, I think it's this is kind of. Amazon playing a little bit of defense uh, and Sue kind of saying, hmm, this is a good time to find a, a safe port in a storm. Uh, I looked and can't find the GMV for that, but the Middle East is a you know 50 million people, um, lots of opportunity there. So, so an interesting play on Amazon. Uh, last little bit of Amazon news. They 
Um, they also shut down uh, – I'm sure you saw this. I'm curious what you think. They shut down Quidzy.com uh, and the whole – not just Quidzy.com, but the diapers and all the subsequent things. And there's been a lot of weird news about this. So they they shut it down because it wasn't profitable. And But then several people uh, kind of leaked to the press that, well, we just had Amazon's execs here at the annual kickoff, which I imagine would be like January – um, saying that you know we're on this path to profitability and we've had profitable months. So a lot of people scratching their heads and some people reading the tea leaves there that this is some kind of a Jeff Bezos messing around with Mark Laurie, who's over the, the founder of Jet that's now at Walmart. Um, not really sure I buy that, but uh, any any thoughts from you on that one? Yeah, no, I have the same uh, thought as you. I, I just don't think um, that – that Jeff Bezos is going to screw around with a bunch of people's lives just to play a game with Mark Laurie, right? And you know, um, there there are people that are losing their their jobs at Quizzy. Um, you know, I think there has to be a, a sounder business reason that they're moving away from it. And I, I've heard the same rumors as you that they haven't been profitable, but that they're they see profitability in 2017. So that that makes you scratch your head why they'd close it. And the the one thought that occurs to me is um, that that they've they've vacillated back and forth on this idea of having all these separate URLs and distribute you know sort of distributing their traffic across all those other URLs versus aggregating it all on the the Amazon property. And I, I do think it's possible that in the early days they felt like Amazon wasn't a credible source for some of these these specific product niches, and so having a dedicated uh, URL and a dedicated site made sense. And there, you know, were moms that would want to join the, the diapers.com program that wouldn't want to be Amazon moms. Um, and, uh, you know, that back then there was, there were SEO advantages to having diapers in the URL and all these sorts of things. And I think a lot of those things have gone away. I think, I think the Amazon brand is much bigger and stronger today. And I, I just think Amazon may have decided that, makes more sense to aggregate all these shoppers on the Amazon platform and have them get access to all 400 million products and that it's just it's just not worth continuing to work hard to get Quidzy to profitability when the core platform is going so well. Yeah, and I'm not sure they consolidated the back end like some of the other things. Like They definitely have Zappos, but I had never heard that they had actually consolidated that. I think it was still running out of a warehouse in New Jersey and stuff. So No, I knew all of, the employees for sense. sure were in New Jersey. So I don't, I don't I, I'm not yeah. certain about the tech, um, but I think that that's true. And the other thing I would just point out is I, I think all the employees that Mark Laurie most loved from Quidzy, he took from them long ago and they were in Chet, which was also in New Jersey. So yeah, and it, it just doesn't, Walmart now. yeah, it just doesn't make sense <laughs> that, that, uh, that uh, that Jeff is doing that for, out of any malice for Mark. Cool. Well, that was a heck of a lot of Amazon news. They've been busy, uh, busy little guys up there in Seattle. Uh, any non-Amazon news you want to hit here at the bottom of the show? Uh, you know, j- given time, I think just a, a couple of things. You know, there continues to be all the, uh, the this Mulligan talk. Like this, this is shaping up to be uh, a really rough time to be in retail. So. Um, there are lots of early indicators that Q1 uh, sales for, for retail are just going to be horrible across the board. Um, and so that's really scary. And we're just seeing announcement after announcement about, you know, retailers that are taking these austerity measures and, and uh, cutting stores and things like that. And so, um, you know, 
uh, with Payless's bankruptcy um, announcement, you you add up all the announced closed stores, and it's over twenty five hundred stores that have already been announced to close this year, and we're only in April. Last year, the major retailers closed sixteen hundred stores, so we're we're way ahead of last year's store closings, and I'm sure we haven't seen the last of it. I have a feeling after uh, all the Q1 earning reports um, that that we're going to see a lot more uh, negative news before it starts to turn around. Yeah, a couple of quick ones from me on the marketplace side. So eBay was also at Shop Talk, and uh, they had their CEO Devin Winning, and uh, I had. Um, the head of advertising on my panel and you know, it's good to see eBay is not out of the game. They, they Devin came out swinging pretty hard. Uh, he made some political statements that everyone was really excited about, but the, in the world of e-commerce, uh, their big announcement was, uh, and then footnote, you know, I think the shop talk folks, uh, have done a really good job of getting people to announce things at the show. So that, that, that's, that's kind of, makes it extra special worth going to. So they announced at the show uh, the uh, two things, essentially, that, you know, number one, they have a new program where they're going to guarantee three-day delivery on about 20 million items on eBay. Um, they've had a program called Fast and Free, um, but it was kind of like a loose kind of promise. You know, it wasn't like Prime, hey, we're going to get you stuff in two days. It was kind of a, hey, Jason, this thing kind of gets to you usually on three days, and we think it will. Uh, and if it so doesn't, probably get you to know, you faster than other yeah. stuff. Yeah, this may get to you kind of fast, um, but this is like, you know, it, until it launches, it hasn't launched yet, but, you know, at least the verbiage from the executives is we're going to guarantee three-day delivery on 20 million items, period, full stop. So so I think that's good. You know, it, it's not two days, but also you don't have to buy into it, so it's free three-day shipping. Uh, so that's interesting. Uh, and then uh, he used the rest of his time to really talk a lot about machine learning and, you know, talking about how – uh, if you were a seller and you wanted to sell a widget, you could take a picture of that widget and eBay will recognize it and kind of say, hey, Jason, are you selling this podcasting microphone? And it looks like a Roadie 200. And, and you know, do you want us – is that right? And do you want us to go ahead and list it for us? So some pretty interesting things, you know, there around machine learning. And then he pretty much said, you know, if you're not going to do machine learning now, you're going to be effectively dead in three years when this is kind of the table stakes. So I, I, I agree with that. You know, the uh, – I talked to some skeptical kind of long-term eBay kind of folks. And, you know, the, the, the snarky kind of answer to that is, well, you know, you go to eBay and you search for something and you can't find it. Why don't they put some machine learning on, on that part of the site? So, <laughs> you know, that, that it, it is funny. eBay continues to kind of underinvest in that part of the shopping experience. So they, they've had some initiatives. They haven't really, you know, as best I can tell, taken root yet, um, but they're they're, they are working on it, but you know it, it does feel like some of the stuff they're doing is nibbling at the edges if you can't find what you're looking for. So uh, I'm a I'm a huge eBay fan, so I, I felt good that they came out swinging and, and aggressive. I just I just worry that they really need to improve that customer experience. Uh, it's kind of several iterations behind not only Amazon but you know Omnichannel and and all the other players out there. Um, the last thing is, uh, so Amazon's been investing, uh, this is, this is kind of a backdoor, more Amazon news, I guess. Uh, but <laughs> Amazon's been investing so much in India that they have really, uh, you know, they, they don't break out the numbers, but, uh, you know, from all the data that's available, like from Comscore and things, it seems like they're really chewing that market up. Uh, they've built, you know, 10 fulfillment centers. They've invested billions of dollars there. Uh, there were two startups there that, that are, were unicorns, meaning they had over a billion dollar valuation, Snapdeal and Flipkart. 
Uh, and there's a lot of rumors that those two guys are considering merging to kind of have a viable alternative to Amazon. So it's pretty interesting. And, in, in, you know, the only market that Amazon's lost in is China, where Alibaba had a bit of a head start and Amazon couldn't, you know, it, it's a good country for Amazon, but it's the one area where they're like number two or I could argue number three or four actually behind uh, Tencent and JD. So, you know, I think Amazon didn't like that, and I think they've decided they're going to win in India. And this is a really indi- good indication that you know they they are um, even though there's some bureaucratic things where they can't do first party there, they can only do third party. But they they've launched FBA, so it's a weird country. It's it's FBA and third party, but no first party. Uh, but that model seems to be working really well for them, and and they're forcing some changes there. So I, I thought that was you know an interesting international flavor since we've we've now had Mercado Libre on this on the on the show, we can start talking about a lot more of this international stuff. Absolutely. Uh, it's going to be interesting to watch. I think, uh, in many ways that watching the Latin America emerge and, uh, uh, the middle East and, and particularly India are, are you know, going to be more fun than, than watching the U S where, where like the winners and losers have already emerged a little bit more. Yeah. Um, and Scott, it is not going to shock you, but it has happened again. We have wasted a perfectly good hour of our listeners' time. Uh, so I want to thank everyone uh, for helping to make the show the success that it is. Yeah, thanks, everyone, for listening. And if you do have a second, we would appreciate you liking our Facebook page and leave us an iTunes review if you have something positive to say. Thanks. Yep. Until next time, happy commerce. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.